you want to treat people how they want to be treated because they deserve to have their respect. They deserve to have that equity piece. And you know how you want to be treated and the things that are important to you. Marrying those things together and and not treating anybody differently than you would want to be treated, but also with that lens that they're a unique individual. They have unique needs. They have unique challenges. So how can you work to try to overcome that? The Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, an organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Mai Vo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza. It can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license. This week, I am sitting down with Amber Cordoba, who is a certified nonprofit professional, or CNP, and the director of business education and consulting services for Presamos CDFI, a division of Chicanos por la Causa. Since 2015, Amber has worked to disrupt the system that overlooks and underserves minority and women-owned businesses through the development of specialized educational and tactical business trainings, programs to deliver one-to-one business assistance, and pushing the envelope on access to capital. In 2020 and 2021, she led the Presamos Paycheck protection program, PPP initiatives that resulted in supporting over 400,000 small businesses nationwide. In late 2021, she also launched an SBA Women's Business Center in Phoenix, Arizona, and a U.S. Department of Commerce Minority Business Development Agency Center in Las Vegas, Nevada. Prior to her work at Prestamos, Amber was involved in the child welfare system as a foster parent and parent aide, co-founded and operated an award-winning merchant services ISO, managed a CPA firm, ran her own bookkeeping business, and has 12 years of experience as treasurer for various political campaigns at the local, state, and federal level. She's an avid entrepreneur and dedicates herself to improving systems to help them become more inclusive and effective for everyone. Amber, thank you so much for taking the time on a Friday to chat with me a little bit about the work that you're you're doing and how you got to this point. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So to start, let's start with the basics, I guess. I'd love to hear sort of what drew you to the world of social impact and social justice as a career. Sure. You know, it's actually funny. A few months ago, I was looking through an old box of photos and mementos, and I came across this news newspaper clipping from my sophomore year of high school. And I, I have it hanging on my computer next to me, and I was quoted as saying, saying uh, students at PV who feel that they have to cut down others to bring themselves up are wrong. They need to grow up. Um, So probably didn't make any friends. (laughs) Probably didn't make any friends with that. But I guess I've just always been an advocate for others who either feel like they don't have a voice or feel like they can't use theirs or that they're not comfortable using it. So definitely never shied away from a chance to promote equity. And I I think it's just something that's in my blood. That's amazing. That's energy that we probably could all use and remind ourselves of constantly. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about the way that you've sort of worked social justice into your career is that it's looked like a lot of different types of jobs and lots of different types of careers from you know the business world to more direct service, nonprofit work. What were some of the benefits in your mind for mixing it up and kind of seeing different types of jobs and different sort of functions across industries? 
I think that the more experiences we have in life, the more exposure that we get to different ways of thinking, different types of people and different ways of doing things. And we also learn to be more flexible and agile. If we're not pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone, then it's really hard for us to grow. I think that as you're changing industries or if you're moving from you know the social sector into the private, for-profit, nonprofit, there's a lot of self-exploration that happens and a lot of self reflection. You should always be building your technical skills along the way. But as you're switching between different jobs, careers, industries, it gives you the opportunity to really explore what work you enjoy doing, but also what is really important and satisfying to you. Your skills that you learn are transferable across all industries, all sectors, but really what is it that impacts you and makes you tick? I think that that's really valuable. From a more practical perspective, the work that I'm doing now wouldn't be possible if I didn't have all that past experience. I needed the experience of working in an office, running my own business in order to know how to support and advocate for small businesses now. And my experience in child welfare and social services was really important for me to learn strengths-based and advocacy and trauma-informed direct service delivery. Uh, Something important that I always talk with my staff about is that at the end of the day, the small business owners that we are serving are just human beings. They're people that have challenges complications, setbacks, traumas. We've all been through you know, a major world trauma the last two years, and it impacts the way that they're able to receive services. And I think it's important to have that lens from the, the social services standpoint or a, a social worker standpoint to really support people for who they are as human beings, not just as business owners. Something that I want to ask that's a bit of a deeper question before I jump into your work at your CDFI right now is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is when I work with my students, they are more than just students. Just like you said, your small business owners are more than just business owners and their challenges are more than just what they're dealing with in their professional life. And something I struggle with a lot, and I think it's a much bigger picture question. So curious what advice you would give. How do you cope with the fact that, or how do you manage expectations with yourself or with the people that you're serving and working with of how much you are able to help understanding that all these challenges are really intersectional? There's only so much that in my context, I think about, I can't change how student loan laws work. I can't change the kind of home life someone has. I can't change the fact that they haven't been able to hold a traditional internship before their senior year. Those are things that are out of my control, but are a part of the challenges that they are facing. And understanding the limits of what I can do is is really hard. So curious what advice you have for people who are wanting to be as helpful as possible but grappling with understanding that there's a lot out of their control in those situations at the same time? Yeah, that is a really good question. And I think it's fundamental to any work you do in any type of helping industry. The biggest thing is really understanding your limitations, as you mentioned. It's knowing what you can and can't do. It's difficult when you're working with people, especially when you care about people and you're advocating for people to not want to do everything within your power and beyond to help them. But you can't be everything to everybody. And you also have to understand that people have to come to the table and they have to put in the work too. A lot of times we run into clients that we're working with, small businesses that have a lot of potential, but for whatever reason, they're not taking the time to make sure that their business is you know, running functionally and they don't want to take the time to learn. They want someone else to do it for them. That could be for a lot of different reasons. It could be that they have a home life issue. They have a childcare issue. They're stressing about how to make their rent payment next week. And the last thing they want 
want to do is learn about, you know, their financial statements. So you have to understand what limitations you have, what limitations your clients have. And I think those really clear expectations up front, setting the stage and constantly reminding your clients, this is what I can do. If it's something outside of my purview, I probably have resources for you and I can support you along the way, but I can't do everything for you as much as I want to, or, you know, I can't pick, I can't uh, change legislation or make legislation or change rules, but I can help you navigate through the system to try to help you be as most successful as you can be. But it's, I think anybody in a helping profession, it's the biggest struggle is, is not being able to fully help every single client or person that comes your way. Totally. That's helpful. It's always just good to hear that I'm not the only one having this challenge, which is why I asked that question too. So that's that's helpful grounding. And I think that clear expectations piece and offering resources, right? Like even if you can't solve everything, just knowing that you can be someone that they turn to, I found for my work at Second Day is really powerful. And I, I'm grateful that I'm able to do at least that much, even if there's a limit to what I'm able to offer. So you mentioned uh, a little bit about the work that you do now. You work at Presamo CDFI, which is a subsidiary of Chicanos por la Causa. And my basic understanding of CDFIs based on my quick Googling around uh, was that CDFIs offer a unique set of options to provide financing to folks who historically haven't been able to access funding for a small business. For example, as you've mentioned, they are more than just financial support, though. They also focus on providing training and other types of assistance so that folks have what they need to be successful in a more holistic way. So one would say, is that a fair description of CDFIs and anything that you would add that you think makes them a really powerful engine for supporting communities? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, a great overview of, of CDFIs. The really great thing about CDFIs is that we're mission-driven and the focus is really on fair, equitable, and responsible financing. Social justice is a huge part of you know the last couple of conferences that I've been to. The theme has been around social justice or social equity. As a CDFI, we provide lending. Um, we, we focus on small business and commercial lending, but there are CDFIs that do home ownership or that finance big projects like hospitals and schools. Or I've seen an auto loan CDFI that focuses on people that have impaired credit history. Really, the, the purpose is to provide financing to individuals that traditional lenders won't touch. So a bank will say, you're not in our, our credit profile. You're too much of a risk. We're not going to lend to you. We're not even going to look at you. CDFIs really focus on how do we take this and turn it into an opportunity because there's there's a ton of statistics on lending to individuals in low income or impacted communities. Their rate of payback and the give back into the community, especially when it's small businesses. A lot of the small businesses we work with, when they hire, they hire from the same community that they live and work in uh, to try to create opportunity for people that are in their community and their families that resemble them. And it's it's an important economic driver. And then on the piece of the additional type of support, the other thing about CDFIs is the goal is to make the borrower successful. For us as a business lender, that means that we work with businesses even to help them through the application process. A lot of the lenders, sorry, a lot of the borrowers that we work 
with. Maybe they've never applied for a loan before and they have no idea what the application documents are. Even the terminology sometimes is really confusing. Like what's, you know, you need to fill out your personal financial statement and people don't know what an asset or a debt is. So we explain that to them. And then we do other things like helping them with a business plan or their marketing. It might be that they think they need capital for their business, but really what they need to do is be getting more customers and there's some cheap or free marketing strategies that they can implore. Maybe they've never used social media. We can teach them how to use social media. Really at the end of the day, the common theme is how can you support the borrower to be successful, whether that's in home ownership or through a small business loan. So something that is coming to my mind is classic in like more tech spaces, for example, or big for-profit companies is this model of incubators and accelerators. So I'm curious to understand in your words, how they're different, particularly like what are the motivations? I think, you know, VCs and accelerators and incubators are focused in my mind, largely on return. And it's obviously in my experience, a very niche space, very, very hard to break into, which feels like a pretty big difference from a CDFI that is trying to focus on access and equity and would argue that accelerators and incubators traditionally are not thinking about it that way. But I would love to hear in your words, how someone who is new to the space would think about these two entities really differently. Yeah, absolutely. So there's over 1300 CDFIs nationwide of varying sizes and specialties. So as you mentioned, they're, you know, they're really accessible. There's probably a couple in every major city. And there's a lot of CDFIs that are now focusing on rural work and in indigenous lands. I think the unique thing about a CDFI is that it, at least our CDFIs that we pair the funding or the capital piece, whether that's debt or potentially equity, along with the business coaching and empowerment services. So they go hand in hand together. So that's the responsible piece of the capital. We're giving people capital and the tools and resources they need in order to help use it properly and successfully to accomplish their goals. Underneath the work that we do, sometimes we run accelerators or sometimes we run incubator programs that are educational in nature. Um, But as you mentioned, there's a lot of accelerators or incubators that are out there that at the end, they take a piece of the equity because they're looking for the return. So it's really about that motivation. As you mentioned, CDFIs are about creating opportunity and not generating shareholder profits. Uh, So I think that there's a different motivation there because CDFIs are mission-driven. And there are for-profit CDFIs, but in general, the CDFIs that you find are always looking to find a way to increase that, that social equity piece and create opportunity and allow for people to have the access to home ownership or create that business and live that American dream. So I think that that's the, the really you hit the nail on the head with the differences really around is it about creating opportunity or creating profits? That's really helpful. And I guess along those lines, what are some of the projects you've been most proud of kind of working at Prestamos the last couple of years? I don't want to toot our horn, but I will say that there's been a lot over the last couple of years. And I think that part of that is there was a call for support during the pandemic, especially in the small business community. And it was the right place, right time for us to be able to step up and, and answer that call. We participated in the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP program, and that was focused on supporting small businesses with forgivable loans if they use the money to keep their staff on payroll and for other allowable expenses. We 
participated in all of the different um, program years. And at the end of the day, we were able to support over 400,000 small businesses in every state and territory with uh, PPP loans. And we're talking about anybody from an Uber driver or a Postmates delivery person, all the way up to large nonprofits that were trying to keep hundreds of people employed and on staff. So that was something that was really, really important that we did um, and made huge impacts. And people of color and people in low-income communities were dis- disproportionately impacted by COVID and are still having impacts right now. And I think the work that we did leveled the playing field in some of those communities in, in getting access. And then, you know, that's a really big deal to me, but I'll say, I think the thing that I'm the most proud of is our Women's Business Center. We launched the Women's Business Center late in 2021, and we've already served close to 500 women over the last year. And it's just been amazing to be able to create a physical space and program programming that's really geared towards helping women become entrepreneurs or take their business to the next level. And that's really focused on the barriers that are unique to challenges that women face, whether that's trying to overcome childcare barriers. You know, in some of our programs, we've had, you know, kids come and color and hang out while the, the mom's learning or creating her business plan. And the community that's being built there is fantastic. You know, some people might be irritated by the thought of having a kid at a professional event, but the women understand that 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 person is taking a step towards creating a better future for herself and for her children. And she's showing up after work, after hours and doing what it takes in order to build her business. And that's, that's really exciting to support the community and just knowing that we're a strong resource. That's really been, that was my baby and it's launched and it's blossoming. And we have a fantastic team that's, that's working there and taking things to the next level. That's awesome. And it really actually reminds me of where this conversation started, which is how do you grapple with not being able to solve every element of what someone is being challenged with. But I think a lot of it comes from reimagining what that intervention even looks like, right? So the example you gave of it's a professional space. And typically, historically, what we've understood that to be is adults only, like find another place to put your kid while you're being your professional version of yourself. And you have really pushed against that and said, you know, these women are showing up as their full selves, which means that they are mothers and they need childcare. So there's no real reason that we can't come up with a creative way to allow them to get the resources they need and know that their child is taken care of. And I think that, that that is an example of the things that are in our control if we're willing to color outside the boxes, so to speak, right? And I, I find that to be a really powerful example. So appreciate all that you're doing on that because I think that's the kind of attitude I would love to keep seeing in lots of different spaces and particularly professional spaces. So there are two facets of your work that I think is particularly interesting. So would love to start by getting your advice on how people can get involved in the world of CDFIs. How do you find them? What kind of you know places are they in terms of launching early you know careers? Curious to get your advice there just to start. Yeah, sure. So if you look at even a nonprofit, but a CDFI in general, it's it's no different than the way other offices function. So there's definitely a lot of entry level type of positions, whether it's an admin type position, a customer service position. There's a way to get your foot in the door if you're just starting out in your career and you really don't have a lot of experience. But then you also look at other things. You know, if you have experience in finance and bookkeeping, well, there's always you know bookkeeping roles 
there's marketing, there's community engagement, there's resource navigation. There's the work that my team does that's around directly supporting small businesses. So if you have experience running a business, working for your mom and dad's, you know, store growing up and you understand business, you know, there's definitely roles and opportunities there. We have client coordinator roles that are really doing intake and assigning work. So there's a lot of different ways to get involved. And then as you continue to grow, you can become a loan officer, you can become a credit analyst, a senior credit officer, you can get into management, you can work on huge financial deals that are involving lots of different tricky layers. There's a lot of different types of opportunity from entry level all the way up to senior management. And a lot of CDFIs are actually part of a larger host organization or a larger nonprofit like we are. So our nonprofit, we have over 1,500 people across five states. Um, so you know you could get in your foot in the door within the CDFI and then move into another position or vice versa. So there's definitely a lot of different opportunities across the board. Specifically to get involved with the CDFI, there's an organization called OFN, Opportunity Finance Network. I see the job board is, is hopping all the time. This field right now, the CDFI field is really growing. There's been a lot of legislation and a lot of additional funding that's come through the Biden administration specifically to grow and expand because the need for accessing capital, whether it's for affordable homeownership or for small business, it continues to grow and be a huge part of our economy. So there's a lot of of emphasis. Um, You can also do something as simple as just search CDFI near me and find some CDFIs that are in the area. Or if you're looking to relocate, there's CDFIs that are national. There are CDFIs that all the work is remote, but there's, I see everybody hiring. I know we're hiring six, seven, eight positions within our CDFI just, just right now. So it's a really good industry to get into. And because of the nature of the work, I think that compared to some other positions that you might find in the nonprofit world, there might be a higher rate of pay. One of the things that I'm curious to get your thoughts on is the relationship between the CDFI and the nonprofit. Help me understand what that relationship looks like and what the benefit for you as a CDFI is to be underneath this umbrella of a nonprofit. I'm curious how that interaction works and how you work together. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. I think any organization struggles, uh, especially nonprofits, with the idea of having to staff human resources, accounting, legal, all of those types of services that aren't involved in the direct delivery of your service or product. So one of the huge benefits for us having our larger nonprofit is that we get to use all of those shared services and we don't have to staff all of those positions in-house. And I think that that model works a lot for smaller nonprofits that work with larger nonprofits and use shared services. So I think that that's one of the biggest benefits. We also, we're we're a wholly owned subsidiary underneath. So technically we're a for-profit entity that generates revenue underneath. So technically we could be considered a, a social enterprise. Um, so all of the profits that we end up generating go back into the, the larger organization or back into our operations to continue to, to grow and to help sustain those shared type of services. We're mission-driven. 
and our mission is in line or the same mission as the nonprofit. And I think that's probably pretty consistent across the board. And it allows us to really advance our mission and really talk about the empowerment of the communities that we serve while leveraging the name and the brand of, you know, CPLC is a 53-year-old organization. There's a lot of history and a lot of brand notoriety there that, you know, as a smaller subsidiary, if we were only talking about Prestamos, that that name recognition isn't there. So there's there's a lot of benefits with anything. Sometimes there's disadvantages. There's you know, red tape or procedures that we have to follow. And we can't be as quick or nimble in decision-making because we have a governing board that we're accountable to as well. So there's pros and cons, but boy, do the pros way, way uh, outweigh the cons. No, that's really interesting. I'm, I've always been fascinated by how mergers and structures are designed to support multiple different kind of operations within the larger umbrella. So that's, that's really interesting and, and very helpful context. The other question I had based on what you said, was particularly under the Biden administration, there's been a lot of legislation to kind of strengthen the CDFI network and the amount that you're able to do. I'm curious, do you think that, or in your experience, has the CDFI world been impacted pretty significantly based on who's in office? Or there's generally an understanding that this is a resource that's needed in the community and it's fairly steady and you just are right now enjoying a generous uptick? in this administration? I think in general, across the last couple decades, that CDFIs have been seen as a catalyst for economic growth and opportunity. It doesn't matter which political party is you know, in office. It's been something that's generally been pretty, pretty supported. I think that really the catalyst for the last couple of years of growth have been the pandemic and the need has grown so much. You know, we saw during the pandemic that our essential services and our small businesses in our community were absolutely vital to us getting through this pandemic and the importance of putting more money and creating more opportunity for those small businesses has really just been at the forefront. So I think that that was really the catalyst. And then obviously in times of pandemic or major need, or when we have recession looming, we start to look for ways to create incentive for people to spend money and you know, it's at the local level. At the local level is where it, what really impacts your community as opposed to a big box store or buying online. You're supporting small businesses that live in your community, that are hiring from your community, and that money is staying in the community. So that's a really important piece of it. And then as this legislation comes down, it's really about, you know, how do we recover and recover stronger and provide the types of resources that are going to make more impact than just giving people money to buy, you know, extra iPhones or, you know, those types of things that sometimes people spend uh, stimulus money on. How can we really use that money to go to the types of organizations that are supporting our small businesses, our communities, putting money and putting those additional supports and resources in to make the businesses be successful? That makes a lot of sense. And that's good to know that generally, this is an industry that has support. And that makes sense. I think in the way that Americans like to talk about small business owners, and the way we like to talk about community, obviously, there is a lot that could be debated on how much do we actually value small businesses over big corporations. But that is a far bigger topic than we 
could get into today. So we will spare our listeners from what will probably turn into quite a rant. But I think sort of the zeitgeist in general supports this idea of small businesses and communities where we want to invest growth into. So that makes a lot of sense. The other thing that you said early on was that there's a lot of different types of CDFIs that have different focuses or different sizes. Curious if you can speak to the kinds of questions that are important to ask when you're trying to understand a CDFI that you might want to get involved with. And I asked that question because when I think about nonprofits in general, it's important to ask certain questions to raise, to catch any red flags about the culture of those organizations or the way that they're thinking about social change and if it's coming from a place of charity versus justice. And so I'm curious if you have any advice of particular things to watch for when you're trying to find a CDFI that aligns with your own values. That's a really good thought-provoking question there. I think that one of the big things with CDFIs is this social justice piece. And it's something that we talk about, but you really want to make sure you're working for an organization that walks the walk and doesn't just talk the talk. So you can ask questions like, what does your portfolio look like? You know, the demographics, what are the census tracts that you're working in? Those specific type of questions that will tell you, are they really doing the work in the communities that they're supposed to be serving? They're DEI initiatives and you know the people that are interviewing you do they is there diversity are there different genders does it, do people look different does there different religions you know you can ask the the makeup of the demographics of the employees and the leadership team and I think it's po- important to look at both who are the employees that are doing the day-to-day work and also who's the leadership team who's the board is it reflective of the clients that they say that they're serving because that's a big piece you know, if you're, we're a Latino serving organization and the majority of our board and the majority of the staff is Latino because that's, that's the group that we're serving, but we're starting to do more initiatives to also increase our diversity across the spectrum so that we're more inclusive and getting the different perspectives and understanding and different worldviews. But if you go and everybody on the board is the same, you know, upper middle class Caucasian person that you typically see on, on finance type of board, you know, doesn't necessarily mean it's all bad, but it just means that there's not diversity. There's not a diverse thoughts. And, you know, there may be some challenges with how equitable or inclusive that that organization and their lending practices are. So I think those are some some good questions to ask. And then how many applications do you get per month? And how many do you approve versus decline? What do you see as the reason for that? Is it because of your underwriting procedures or you just don't get people that are qualified? And then what are you doing to make capital more accessible? Because that's your charter is to lend to in, you know impacted communities. Yeah, I think a lot of those questions resonate across industries. But I think particularly your question about portfolios and understanding what communities are you serving? And does the staff reflect that is so critical. I feel like the other piece of the work that I just personally find really interesting about your CDFI in particular and your team and your role is the work that you're doing to support entrepreneurs who are not just thinking about building a small business, but thinking about the impact that their business is going to have on their community, either directly through some sort of you know mission-based business model or indirectly, but still high impact, like you said, with who you're choosing to hire and who you're kind of bringing along in your success. So I'm wondering if you can speak to what that has looked like for you. Yeah. So back in 2019, we actually got a grant through the Health and Human Services Department. And the goal was to create an incubation and lending program for social enterprise. 
enterprises, whether they were for-profit or non-profit, uh, that had the focus of generating revenue, but also wanted to give back to the community in the form of giving capital back, hiring from hard-to-hire communities, volunteering, that really had that social support element built in. So we we started that program right when COVID was hitting. So it was a terrible time to be uh, trying to launch a physical incubator. So we moved everything online and just started trying to support those businesses through businesses or nonprofits, those social enterprises through all of the, the things that any entrepreneur or small business face, those business fundamentals. But really with that focus on how are you supporting the communities that you live and work in? How really the emphasis of this was to create jobs and especially create jobs for individuals in hard to hire situations, whether that meant that they were uh, low income or experiencing poverty. Maybe they had a history of abuse or trafficking. Maybe they were formally incarcerated and are in a reentry status. There's a lot of barriers that people face to getting access to employment. So we were really trying to work with small businesses and medium-sized businesses to create jobs that are going to bring people that specifically that have have challenges in accessing employment and not only providing them with good jobs that have pay and benefits, but also wraparound services, whether that's bringing in somebody to talk about budgeting. Maybe they've never had somebody that sat down and talked to them about the importance of a checking account and how to manage a budget and understand what your income and your expenses are, or are there social service needs that you can partner with an organization like CPLC to get them access to mental health care or domestic violence support services. So it was really about getting businesses to think beyond just hiring somebody, but how can you hire from a population that is at a disadvantage and getting a good quality job? And then what can you do to continue to support their journey and help them be more successful and build that type of culture? Yeah, I'm struck by the fact that kind of the way that Second Day thinks about the way that they serve students is so parallel to the way that you think about serving your entrepreneurs which is it's not just about getting them access to capital or getting a student a job, there has to be an understanding that there is a need for holistic support and that there's so many layers to what barriers someone is facing apart from just money. And so I think that it's really cool and inspiring to hear how y'all are thinking about it in a very different context, but also always good to hear that we are running in parallel with so many amazing organizations who are trying to come up with more thoughtful services and support and community for people to really build the kind of lives that they want to build. So I don't know if you have, do you have any closing thoughts or anything that you'd kind of like to share with listeners? I always like to pair the golden rule of treat others how you want to be treated, but also with the platinum rule of treat others how they want to be treated. So I think it's twofold. You want to treat people how they want to be treated because they deserve to have their respect. They deserve to have that equity piece. And you know how you want to be treated and the things that are important to you. Mirroring those things together and, and not treating anybody differently than you would want to be treated, but also with that lens that they're a unique individual. They have unique needs, they have unique challenges. So how can you work to try to overcome that? And I think that that should be a fundamental thing to anybody in a helping profession. While at the same time, it's really important that people prevent burnout for their own selves. And I know I'm transitioning to a different topic here, but 
you know, it's, it's kind of this cliche thing that we say self-care and, you know, go get a pedicure, go to the spa. It's, it's really about setting boundaries in this work that we do for yourself. And personal investment is an important piece of the work that we do because we are working with people and we care about people, but you can only do it to an extent that it's not going to impact your own personal well-being because we can't help anybody else if our tanks are full or if we're struggling. So I think it's important to always talk about and, and any type of helping profession. And I consider anything in the social justice space, a, a helping profession really to make sure you're taking care of yourself too, because it's, it's difficult work, but very fulfilling. Amazing. I can't think of a better note to end on. Amber, thank you so much again for sharing so much of what you've been doing, the work that you're doing within your team and for the larger community. Very grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the work and get these important topics and subjects out into the community, especially into this next generation of the the workforce. It's really important and valuable. The Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, an organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Mai Vo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza. It can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license. 